Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. Hey, uh, believe it or not, uh, my name's Ben. I'm the pastor here. It's been a while. I, um, <laughs> uh, over the last uh, two weeks, um, Olivia and I were on, we've been, I've been debating what to call it, if it's a vacation, a COVID-cation, a quarantine-cation, a uh, but we got COVID, and uh, I got it first, I passed it to Olivia, Olivia and I passed it to Davey, so basically for the two weeks that we were planning to go and spend with family, we spent at home uh, convalescing, our, our COVID became ca- cabin fever, and it was rough, and so... <laughs> Uh, glad to be back. We're feeling a lot better now. Uh, so good to be back with you. I think that worshiping with you guys online, uh, for me, it was a reminder and it built in me um, compassion for those of us who part of our church family who's worshiping from home. Uh, we love you and we, we miss you. We cannot wait for the day that we can all be back together. So if you're at home because of safety, because of precaution, uh, we bless you with that, but we miss you, and we love you, and we wanna, can't, cannot wait to sing together and to stand together with you and to see you face to face. So, we love you. Welcome. All right, uh, we are in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 and following, so go ahead, open up your Bibles there. That's where we're going to be. Before we go there, I've got some announcements for you um, that it's more like a family update. I'm going to give two of those announcements here at the beginning, and I'm going to give two more of those announcements at the end after our service, just because there's a lot of updates about the Be Free multi-site that I need to share with you guys. I was planning to space it out, but then COVID kind of sucked it together. So, a couple things. The two very exciting things I'm going to share at the beginning of the service. Both of them have to do with something that's happening at our Be Free campus in Summersworth. Um, a couple months ago, Tim Monahan, the pastor of Be Free Summersworth, he came and he made a request, right? He asked for money to help finance the, um, the renovation of a space for their church to meet. They have been out of, uh, they have not been able to meet together uh, for basically the beginning of COVID. It's been about 20, 21 months since their church has been able to gather all together. But they found a space. They came asking for thirty to $40,000 to do all the renovations necessary you know, uh, there's, there's fire code, building code issues that they've been running into, all of that. The multi-site has given, has, has donated $57,000 to help make that space possible. It's incredible. It's a testimony to the provision of God. It's a testimony to the generosity of the multi-site church. Uh, Tim confessed, he and the elders struggled to believe that God could actually give the 30, uh, find that $30,000 to make it possible. And God almost doubled it through your generosity, his people. So thank you so much for that. Um, second update, very exciting. Uh, if you know Tim Monahan, you know that they, his family has been on a journey of fostering and adopting now for years and years. And they've had foster kids come through their home. But just a couple, about a month ago, um, oh, was it already up there? Um, just about a month ago, uh, they got word that two foster kids that had come through their home in the past, uh, um, now officially were open for adoption. And this is a family, these are kids that they loved, that they cared for, but that the state moved on in the past. So two days ago, on Friday, they adopted Callie Ann and Beckham into their family. This is the new Monaghan family. Um, so Callie Ann and Beckham are the two littles. Um, and they are officially part of the Be Free family. So we're really excited for that. Really excited for that. Man, that, and that is, 
can I say, that is just a picture of the Jesus that you see in Tim and Abby, if you know them. Uh, God is working through them, through their church, through their family, giving homes to kids that don't have them. Praise God. Because what are we? We're adopted orphans. That's what we all are. Right? We're all people who, because of our sin, have been separated from the Father, the God of the universe, but through his love, through the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, have been adopted into his family. That's a picture of what God did for us. Praise God. So, anyway, there's my rant. Um, so let's take a minute. Let's, let's pray and praise God for what's going on in Summersworth, what's going on in the Monahan family, and then I'm going to petition, request the Lord to come and work in this time that we spend together in Acts chapter 15. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this time, this season of our church's life, and I know in many of our individual lives, just through conversations I've had with people, is a season where we struggle sometimes to see how you're working. This is a hard season for so many different reasons. And on top of the reasons we could all name about things going on in the world, each of us have hard things going on in our own lives, big or small. And so, Father, while it's hard sometimes to see where you're working, sometimes to see the good things that are going on, Lord, it is such a blessing when we can see clear evidence, clear examples of how you are working through your people. And through Summersworth and through the adoption of Callie-Ann and Beckham, Lord, we see God working through his people. We praise you. We see you working, your hand. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that we would give ourselves to being your hands in this world more and more. Father, that the world would look at us, look at our church, and look at individual lives of us, our lives, Lord, and see in us a picture of Jesus, a life that doesn't look like anything else people have seen before. And I pray, Father, that we would be a light in a dark, dark place. Thank you for Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for the way he changes our standing before you and even gives us joy in dark places. Anyway, Father, we, we give all of this. We thank you for all of this. We give this time to you. Change us, shape us, use this time for your glory. And I pray that this passage at the end of Acts chapter 15 would help us see a little bit more about what it looks like to live as your people in this world. So we pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So we've been in the book of Acts now for close to 40 weeks, 30-something weeks, and uh, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, what we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is this. Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now that's basically what we've seen as we've walked through the book of Acts so far. Chapters 1 through 7 is a story of how the witness of Jesus Christ went forth in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 through 12, it's a story of how the witness of Jesus Christ went forth in Judea and Samaria. Then in 13 and following, we have seen the good news of Jesus Christ spread throughout the Roman world to the ends of the earth, and that's the part of the book that we're in now. Over the last couple of chapters, we've seen Paul and Barnabas go about on their first missionary journey. They took a long trip to a whole bunch of different cities. We'll see a map here in a little bit. And as they went on, these, on this journey, they made churches. They planted churches, and they made disciples. And they came back to Jerusalem with this question, what do Gentiles need to do in order to be saved? 
The question was, do the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism before they start following the king of the Jews, before they start following Jesus Christ? All of these people with different opinions came together at a council in Jerusalem, and they came together and they decided with one voice, with one mind, that the people who were Gentiles who started following Jesus Christ do not have to convert to Judaism before they convert to Christianity. They just have to repent and believe the gospel. They just have to follow Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of unity in that, in that moment. Different opinions coming together, working things out, Paul and Barnabas take this news along with a man named Silas, and they bring it up to the church in Antioch, and they share that news. And at the end of where, where we stopped, what we last read was that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That's where we're at in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, doing their thing, having shared this good news. Now, I think what's, what's hard for us then as we turn to our chapter today, is that we just saw this beautiful picture of unity. Different opinions, people from different persuasions coming together with different opinions, but coming to a unified conclusion. But now we come to this passage, and we see two people that we've come to know well, Paul and Barnabas, two people who are partners in the gospel, who are brothers in Christ, leaders in the church, disagreeing over a pretty, what seems to be minor issue. It's jarring for us because we just saw this beautiful picture of unity. What is happening here when we see such a picture of disunity? In this passage, Paul and Barnabas, they disagree, they divide, and by the end of the passage today, we see Barney sailing off to the sunset, never to be seen again. <laughs> um, he, his name and the name of Mark doesn't show up for the rest of the book of Acts. You never hear their name again. And so I think that we read this and we have to ask ourselves, what is going on here? As he sails off into the sunset, is this an example of hot-headed fickleness? Is this first-century cancel culture? Is this evidence that Christians can't actually be uh, as united as we're called to be? Is this, I mean, after all, if Paul and Barnabas can't make it work, can we? <laughs> and so what we're going to do now is let's jump into this story. Let's see what happens and then let's see what we can learn from it. So meet me here at Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15, verse 36. I'm just going to read this first verse. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, they're still in Antioch here, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay. So that's the idea. Paul and Barnabas, they want to return and visit the churches they planted. They wanted to go and check up on all these people that they saw come to Christ from their first missionary journey. Let's put the map up here on the screen now and remind ourselves what this journey was. They started in Antioch there in the, on the right side of the screen. And they traveled in a big C shape. Then getting to Derby, at the end of that, they turned around and they came back. That's basically what the missionary journey was. And on the way out, they were preaching the gospel. They were, uh, you know, it might be oversimplifying it to say it like this, but on their way out, they were almost more focused on evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Then on the way back, they went back to each church they planted to see how they were doing, to pour into them. We might say that they focused on discipleship, growing them in the things of the Lord. And I mean, in chapter 14, we read what they did on that return journey. They 
strengthen the souls of the believers. They encourage them to continue. They warn them about the tribulations to come. They organized them, appointing elders in each of their churches. They went out planting churches. They came home encouraging churches, organizing, reminding churches of everything that's true. And so it seems from this verse, they want to do that again. Go back to these churches, see how they're doing. We'll see a little bit later, it even says strengthen the churches. They want to continue to strengthen the churches. <laughs> but as Paul and Barnabas get ready to go, they hit a snag, right? So that's what we see here. Join me in verse 37 through 41. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in, in Pamphylia, that's southern, uh, modern-day Turkey, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded, or commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So when we think about the first missionary journey of Paul, we typically think about it being Paul and, and Barnabas, right? But if you remember, it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas who went out on that first missionary journey. It was actually Paul, Barnabas, and Mark who left on that first missionary journey. That was the team. That was the missions team that was sent out from Antioch. But Mark didn't last that long. He didn't make it that far. We can put another map up here on the screen. This was Mark's part of the first missionary journey. He traveled with them across Cyprus, but then basically once they got to the mainland, as soon as he got there, we read in Acts 13, 13, you can read that, leave that there. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that was on Cyprus, and came to Perga, that was Turkey, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's Mark. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Do you remember that, um, that servant girl, Rhoda, that we met back in, in Jerusalem a number of chapters ago? That was John Mark's house. So he's from Jerusalem. He was on this missionary journey. They had already faced some serious tension, some, some serious persecution on this journey, and we don't know if that's what caused him to turn around, but it seems that as soon as Mark got to Turkey, he went home to mommy. He turned around and went back to Jerusalem um, and, and left Paul and Barnabas there to continue the, the journey on their own. He went with them and he ditched them. And so now as they're preparing for the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are in different places here. Uh, they, they have different opinions about what to do with Mark. What, what does Barnabas say? Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance. After all, if we remember, Barnabas actually isn't this man's name. His name is Joseph, but Barnabas was his nickname, and Barnabas means son of encouragement. So maybe it shouldn't be surprising to us that he's the guy who wants to give John Mark a second chance. But also, we, we read in the book of Colossians chapter 4, Barnabas and Mark were cousins. They're family. So maybe it shouldn't be surprising to us that Mark wants to give, uh, Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance. He wants to bring him with him. And after all, he has a point. Because Paul, uh, Paul will later write in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is the way of Christ. 
Forgiveness is a distinctly Christian thing to do because Christians are, by nature, a forgiven people. We're going to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. But that's Barnabas' side. He wants to give John Mark this second chance. Now, Paul's on a different page. He basically says, hey, John Mark, he's had his chance. And he flaked out. Are we really going to give him another shot? Are we going to take him again? How do we know that we can trust him? How do you know he's the real deal? How do we know that he's not going to flake out again? And we could say that's just, you know, uh, logic or wisdom, but it's more than that. It's, it's also biblical. I mean, we think about what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. John Mark didn't just look back. He went back. He ran out on him. And so their disagreement, it's understandable. And this disagreement wasn't just an agree-to-disagree thing. This wasn't what we might call a green light or a yellow light issue. For them, they treated it like a red light issue, something they could not get past. It was sharp. It was, it was heated. It was, it, was, it, was, it was intense. It was volatile. So much so, apparently, that by the end of this debate, they separated and went in different directions. One more time, let's put a map up here on the screen. Barnabas and Mark sailed west. Oh, sorry, next, next map here. Uh, Barnabas and, uh, and Saul, and uh, sorry, Barnabas and Mark sailed west from Antioch down to Cyprus. And Paul and Silas traveled north to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So what do we make of all this? I mean, what do we do with this? Is, is this passage teaching us that, hey, it's okay to have divisions and, and dissension amongst believers in the church? Is it baptizing argument? Is it telling us that, hey, you know what, if Paul and Barnabas did it, then maybe we should do it too. Maybe when we have arguments, it makes sense for us to divide and go in separate directions. I mean, this is a good opportunity for us to be reminded of the fact that not everything that the Bible describes is something that it prescribes. In other words, not everything that it tells us uh, that happened is something that we should imitate. Sometimes the Bible just tells a report, this is what happens, without casting judgment on whether or not it should have, or whether or not it should again. So what do we make of it? What should we notice about this? In other words, what do we do in conflict? What did they do with conflict, and how does it shape us? Now, for the rest of our time together, I think we need to notice two things about this story, because this is where we're stopping. We need to notice two things about this story, and it's going to give us two main things that we can take away uh, from this story as we seek to follow Christ today. The first thing that we need to notice is this. Paul and Barnabas' division is not the end of their mission. Paul and Barnabas' division is not the end of their mission. God called them to a mission, and this division did not stop them from continuing to be faithful to it. After all, what was their mission? What did Jesus call them to do? Again, he called them, he called us, Acts 1-8, that they need to be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. That's what they are called to do. That's what we are called to do, and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to continue on with their mission to return to visit the brothers in every city. And even despite this division, that's exactly what they did. If we think about what we just saw on that map, we remember the first map was that big C shape. 
And that that last map I just showed you, Barnabas went west, Saul went north. Sorry, he's Paul now. Uh, Paul went north. What we have to recognize is that despite their division, they did exactly the mission that God gave them to do. Barnabas went on a mission starting at the beginning of their first missionary journey, and Paul went on a journey starting at the end of their missionary journey. Their division did not prevent them from continuing their mission. Their division did not prevent them from fulfilling the call that God gave them. They continued to do what God called them to do, though their disagreement was sharp. Nothing was going to stop them from fulfilling the call of God here. And in fact, I mean, when we think about it, we might say that this division in the end allowed these two men to play to their strengths a little bit more. And we might even argue that this division allowed the kingdom of God to go forward in what might, some might call a more strategic way. Because think about this. Where did Barnabas go? He went to Cyprus. Well, where's Barnabas from? Acts 4 tells us he's from Cyprus. Barnabas went to his hometown. He went back to the place where he was known, where he had relationships, where he knew the culture. It might make sense to say that Barnabas went back to Cyprus and was more able to do the ministry that God had for him to do there because he was better equipped to do ministry in that location. Now let's think about Paul. Where did Paul go? Paul went to Syria and Cilicia. Acts 9 tells us where Paul's from. He's from Tarsus in Cilicia. Barnabas didn't only go home. Paul went home too. He went home to the place where he was known, where he had relationships, where he knew the culture. We might argue that they both went to places where they were more able to effectively minister, more able to play to their strengths. I'm not defending it. (laughs) I'm not saying that division is therefore a good thing, but we might see how God might be using this together for good. He tends to do that. We also see that in who they decided to bring. Because after all, Barnabas brought Mark back to Cyprus, the place where he had done ministry in the past. Mark had already gone on mission, on mission through Cyprus. Might it be that Mark was the perfect companion for his journey back to that island? And what about Paul? Well, Paul brought Silas. Well, who's Silas? Silas was the guy who came to Antioch to tell them the good news. You don't have to act like Jews. He was the guy who bore that message back in Acts chapter 15. And what we're going to see next, or after Advent, is that on this mission that Paul continues to go on, the mission that he's going to continue to proclaim as he goes to these predominantly Gentile churches, is you don't have to follow the Old Testament law anymore. You're free. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. In other words, Paul brings with him a companion who has been commissioned with the task to bring this message to the churches. He's the perfect companion for that mission, for that journey. And so I want to say here, and again, I'm not defending the division that we see. But frankly, I'm not even trying to explain the division. (laughs) To cast judgment on the division, because after all, Luke here, he doesn't seem all that concerned with giving a clear judgment on whether or not they should have divided or not. All I am trying to say is that though the division happened, Paul and Barnabas were committed to be faithful to the mission, to the calling that God gave them. Nothing was going to stop them from bringing the gospel to these people, fulfilling the call that God had put on their lives. I'm not calling us to imitate their division, but I am calling us to imitate their obedience. 
I'll say it again. I'm not calling us to imitate their division. I'm calling us today, calling myself, to seek to imitate their obedience. To let nothing stop us from obeying the calls that God has put upon our lives. To let nothing stop us from walking faithfully on the missions that God has sent us on. Because we know that as we live in this life, barriers pop up. Barriers that prevent us from easily and naturally doing some of the things that God might be calling us to do. They might be uh, financial barriers. They might be uh, barriers of busyness. They might be sins in our life. Barriers pop up. But we must not let anything stop us from obeying the calls that God has put upon our lives. Now, I want to pause here before going any further with that because I, I understand that uh, calling is, a, is a, a notorious sticky language, right? When we, when we talk about what God has called us to uh, or what God is calling us to do, what his will is, we often get pretty stuck in the mud there because how do we know the specifics? How do we know exactly what God is calling us to do? Does he want us to take this route or this route, we get so caught up in the specifics, but I think what we have to remember here, and what I think we need to continually remind ourselves in this, when we think about what God calls us to do and how he calls us to live, what his will is for us, is that for all that God hasn't made clear to us, he has made so much more absolutely crystal clear to us. In other words, for everything that seems gray in the will of God, there is so much that is black and white. Let me give you a little list of the call of God, the call that he has given you, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me tell you exactly what God has called you to do, exactly who God has called you to be. God has called you to love the Lord with God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He has called you to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. That is the call of God on your life. Let nothing stop you. Nothing stop you from fulfilling that call. He has called you to be his witnesses, Acts 1. He has called you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commands, Matthew 28. He has called you to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, to love one another, Romans 12, to encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, to stir one another up to love and good works, Hebrews 10. To exhort one another, Hebrews 3. To bear one another's love, uh, with one another in love, Ephesians 4. To not grumble against one another, James 5. We could go on up to 60 other one another verses. The Bible makes it absolutely clear what God wants us to do. That's the call of the Lord. That's the will of the Lord in black and in white. This is your calling. Let nothing stop you from keeping it. We could keep going. Are you a husband? If you're a husband, God has a call in your life. He has called you to live with your wife in an understanding way, 1 Peter 3. He has called you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He has called you to lead her for her good and to labor for her flourishing, Ephesians 5. Let nothing stop you from that calling. Not your work, not your sin, not your boat. Let nothing stop you from fulfilling the call that God has given you as a husband. Are you a wife? God has a call in your life. His call is for you to love your husband, to come under the shelter of his loving, sanctifying wings, Ephesians 5, to partner with him for the flourishing of the family and the flourishing of the community. Let nothing stop you from the calling of God that he has put on your life. Are you a parent? 
If you're a parent, God has given you a very clear calling. His calling is that you would disciple and discipline your kids. That you would train them up in the way they should go, Proverbs 22. Not only teaching them to follow and to honor Christ, but modeling for them a life of faith. Let nothing stop you from fulfilling that calling. Do you have a job? Are you a worker? Because if you do, God has a call for your life. He wants you to work with all your heart as unto him, Colossians 3. He wants you to honor your employer, to work honestly, to work hard. Let nothing stop you from fulfilling that calling that God has put on your life. Are you a citizen in this country, a citizen in this community, a part of this world? God has given you a call as well. He has called you to let your light shine so that men might see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. That's the call he has given you, to speak the truth in love, to show the love of Christ indeed. Let nothing stop you from fulfilling the calling of God. Now, are you a part of the church? a church, any church. God has put a calling on your life to walk together as a family, not just receiving, but giving. To practice the 60 plus one anotherings that God gave us to do clearly in this book. And as you practice these one anotherings, my call for you, his call for you, is to not let anything stop you from fulfilling that. So what is God calling you to? <laughs> God might have not written the clear, specific callings of his will in the sky for you to read, but he has written his will for your life in this book. In black and white. And frankly, there's a lot to be getting along with in here. And when we wonder to ourselves what the specifics of God's calling are, because that's a good question. Ask that question. Start here. And once you start there, then get on your knees with the body of Christ. Bring your brothers and your sisters into that discernment process and come before the Lord seeking his wisdom, seeking his will, seeking his guidance. But don't do it alone. Do it together. Do it before him and do it with these words before you. That's how we seek the call of God. Start there. And so that's the first thing I think we need to notice from this passage. Notice from the, the story of Paul and Barnabas. They didn't let anything stop them from fulfilling the call that God had put on their life. And oh, Christian, do not let anything stop you from obeying the call that God has put on your life. That's number one. The second thing that we need to take away from this and to notice here is, is similar because it also has to do with conflict, right? The, the first thing we notice is how, Paul and Barnabas, how conflict shaped Paul and Barnabas' mission. But now I want to turn our attention to the thing that's right on the surface, and that is how conflict shaped Paul and Barnabas' relationship. Because the relational rift that happens here is the thing that stands out above anything else, right? That's the thing that we walk away with, kind of scratching our heads, like, come on, guys, like, you should be able to work this out. You should have been able to reconcile here. Because I told you before, right, that this relational rift happens. Paul, uh, sorry, Barnabas and Mark, uh, they, they sail away into the, the sunset, and we never hear their names again, either of them, for the rest of the, for the, rest of the book of Acts. But the thing is, we do read about both of them again in the Bible. 
We do read about both of them again, specifically uh, in Paul's letters, the letter that he writes to the multiple, ch- multiple churches. First, we learn a little bit about what happens to Barnabas. We learn about uh, Paul and Barnabas just a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And uh, I'm not going to read it for you, but in that passage... Paul is talking about a completely unrelated subject, but he holds up, he mentions Barnabas in this passage. And in that passage, what he does is he holds up Barnabas as an example of a faithful, respected, worthy minister of the gospel. Paul says, you want to see who deserves our honor as a leader in the church? Barnabas. And so we look at the book of Acts and it seems, hey, maybe this reconciliation never happened. Maybe there was just this rift that was never divided but what it, or never reconciled. But what it seems from reading the rest of Scripture is that there was a reconciliation. Forgiveness was extended. That relationship was restored. These two men did not experience this relational rift and never speak to one another again, hold no respect for one another. They did not cancel each other to, lose our, to use our current language. The sharp disagreement that they experienced did not end their love, affection, and respect for one another. Uh, we don't know if they ministered together later in person, but they did see each other as partners in the kingdom of God, respected uh, friends and colleagues in the work of the kingdom. So that's Barnabas. And what about Mark? I mean, Mark is all over the place in the letters of Paul. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Paul's saying, I want to work with Mark. Bring him with me, with you when you come and visit me, because I want to keep working with him. And the thing is, in Philemon uh, verse 24 in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, we read that Paul and Mark are actually together in the same place doing ministry there in those chapters. He says, Mark sends you greetings, because they are together working together at this point. Again, though we never read about it in the book of Acts or anywhere else, we don't see the forgiveness happen. What it seems is that there is not only forgiveness, but a reunification for these two men. Years later, Paul and Mark will not only have a fruitful friendship, but a fruitful partnership in the gospel. And here's the point that I think we need to take away from this. Not all fights are final. Not all fights are final. Not all disagreements have to lead to ultimate division. Not all, not, all, uh, not all fights need to lead to a relational permanent separation. Man, ask any married couple who's been married for more than a couple of weeks. Fights happen and reconciliation happens. Forgiveness, reconciliation is possible, but I want to say this as clearly as possible. Forgiveness is possible especially among Christ's people. Here's why. I said this before, is that the community of Christ should be the most forgiving community in the world because we are the community who has been forgiven the most. And we of all people should be the most able to reconcile with one another because we are the people who have been reconciled with an eternally more holy God. And I mean, I'll talk about myself here. I'm not going to put this upon you. I'm going to tell my story, and you can wonder, you can uh, uh, wrestle with whether this applies to you as well. But speaking for myself, my sin, <laughs> my sin has offended God far more than anyone else's sin could, have ever, could ever offend me. 
I have done more to offend him who is far holier than anything that you could ever do to sin against me. But God, rather than chalking me up as a bad job, Rather than writing me off as a hopeless case, what God did was he forgave me. I didn't deserve it, but nevertheless, he gave it. He gave that forgiveness when I did nothing. In fact, he sent his only son to die in my place so that I could receive that forgiveness. Now, I am someone who has experienced firsthand a radical, radical, radical forgiveness. Is that your story? Have you experienced that forgiveness? Have you experienced the washing away of your great sin by doing nothing but putting faith in his son? I am a sinner who has been forgiven. I am alive only because he was willing to forgive me. Is that your story? Because if it is, if you have been forgiven like that and I have been forgiven like that, if we have known this radical forgiveness poured out on us, could we not, would we not be able to naturally allow God's reshaping of us in our hearts to pour out in love, mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation for one another? If you believe that, if you believe in Christ, My story is your story. And that's many of our stories here. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, like I I quoted a little bit ago, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Well, as God in Christ forgave you. If you are a believer, my encouragement for you is this. Not all fights are final. Not all division needs to end with ultimate separation. Forgiveness and reconciliation is possible, especially, not exclusively, but especially among Christ's people. It's going to require humility. It's going to require a lot of wisdom. It might mean privately and respectfully talking with a brother, not gossiping, talking with a brother or a sister to figure out what the wisest path forward towards reconciliation looks like. But reconciliation, forgiveness, is possible, especially, not exclusively, but especially among Christ's people. So if there's somebody in your life that you've been withholding forgiveness from, maybe just in your heart or maybe through an actual verbal, uh, 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 real circumstance in your life, I want to urge you, pursue forgiveness. Pursue reconciliation. Because what is more Christ-like than us as Christ's people taking the initiative to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to a relationship? Let's show Christ to the world in that way because let's face it, that is countercultural. That is the type of thing that will shock the world. That is the type of act that will show the world Jesus in us. So Christian, seek, pursue forgiveness and reconciliation humbly and wisely. And if you're not a believer, I want to tell you that you are beloved by God. He loves you. He cherishes you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He loves you not because you are good, but because he is good. 
Because like you, like, like, like you, I, and every other person, we are not perfect, we are broken. Sin is in all of us, and the consequences of sin is death, eternal separation from the perfect God. But here's where the good news of Christianity comes in, and it burns bright. The gospel is this, that God in his love and in his mercy holds out forgiveness to you. Forgiveness for free by faith. That's what he offers you. That's what he's offered me. And Jesus died to, for you so that you could, uh, could, could receive that forgiveness. He died taking the punishment that you deserve for sin so that by faith and only by faith in him and his work, his forgiveness is offered to you. It's yours. So my call for you, if you are not a follower of Christ, is to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from sin, turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness. Forgiveness by faith for free. He who knew no sin took your sin. He who gave his life gives you life. What he did is all it takes for him to take all you've done. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where you can find hope, life, and forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are people who are not special, God. You didn't love us and choose us, Father, because we were better than other people. God, we are so average and Father, we all have brokenness, and we're all in process, and uh, I'm sure the people who know us best could make a laundry list of things that are wrong with us, but here's the reality. Though all that is true, you love us like a son and a daughter. You love us, Father, with a love that is so much greater than anything that we could comprehend, Father. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us to die for us so that you could have a relationship with us? Why? Grace. <laughs> Your mercy. And so, Father, today we, we marvel at that, and we ask that you would help us live out the forgiveness, the same kind of forgiveness, the same kind of mercy, the same type of love that you have shown to us, Father. And I pray that for those of us today who do not know that grace, do not know that mercy, and have not received your forgiveness, that they would turn to you and receive it freely. And find not only forgiveness, but life and joy in the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you for all of this. In your son's holy name, amen.